Well, go ahead and grab your Bibles if you haven't already and turn with me. We're Actually, we're going through the book of Exodus. So um, if you've been tracking with us, you're well aware of that. If you're visiting or you haven't been here in a while, we're in Exodus chapter 27 tonight. So Exodus 27, while you're getting there, I will pray. Pray with me in your heart. Father, let there be something of a holy reverence that kind of overcomes us right now because of what we're about to do. Lord, if we're coming with any kind of trivial or flippant way to your word, we repent right now. Because, Lord, what we're doing by opening your word is so sacred and so good. And I pray right now that, Lord, whatever we've been thinking about all day, whatever we came in with, whatever's going on around us, that all of it would be quiet. And that, Lord, you would speak to us through your living, powerful word tonight by your Holy Spirit for the glory of Jesus. We are not here, Lord, to just get more information. We want to know Jesus better. We want to know you, Jesus. Like we sang tonight, we want to know you and we want to make you known to a lost and dying world. So come, Lord, and fill our hearts, we pray. And I ask this in the name of Jesus and for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, Exodus chapter 27. And for the sake of context... And for the benefit of those who maybe haven't been here in a while or um, are visiting for the first time, certainly not to bore anybody, but we do need to just get a little bit of a running start and a backdrop as to what's happening or else we'll just kind of pick up and say, where are we? What's going on? So just quick, quick, quick kind of reminder as to what's happened thus far. We're in the Exodus. This is that famous book, that famous section of the scripture that deals with how the children of Israel were delivered out of Egypt, the taskmaster of Pharaoh. They were crying out to the Lord. God sent a deliverer by the name of Moses and told Pharaoh, hey, God says, let my people go. Pharaoh said, who's God? God Moses says, I'll show you exactly who he is. And so with 10 plagues, on the 10th plague, they were released. They go out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, into the wilderness, camp at various places, and right now where we've kind of paused is we are camped out with the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. It's a significant, huge moment in the history of not only the children of Israel, but of the world. I mean, this is a humongously significant section of Scripture because it's at this camp spot, if you want to call it that, where we've already seen God break through heaven in a sense, some of his glory come down upon Mount Sinai with fire and thunder and with a loud voice, and he's bellowed out with this terrible, awesome glory, the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel. You guys remember that? And they were so freaked out. They were like, Moses, this isn't going to work. It's too scary. You go talk to God. Whatever he tells you, come and tell us, and we'll do it. I mean, it was just this awesome display of God's power. So that's happened. And then after that, what God did is he invited Moses back up onto the mountain. So Moses has gone back up to the mountain, 
And it's going to be like, like 40 days and 40 nights until he comes back down. And what's happening while he's up there is God is giving him two things. Number one, he's giving him the Ten Commandments. He's, he's given verbally the Ten Commandments, but now he's going to write them with his finger, the finger of God, onto uh, stone tablets, two tablets, one tablet with four commandments, one tablet with six commandments. And they're going to go down with Moses. We know that part. The part that we're studying right now is the lesser known part. This is what else God is giving Moses on the mountain. He's giving him plans for what we call what? The tabernacle. The tabernacle. And that's what we've been studying. The tabernacle. The special, elaborate tent that was designed to travel with the children of Israel as they were making their way through the wilderness. It would be right smack dab in the middle of their camp so as to communicate from God, I want to be right in the middle of your lives. God desires relationship. He's always desired relationship. And he puts himself, boom, right in the middle of the children of Israel's camp. And so we've been looking at the, the dimensions and the structure, and that may sound boring at first glance, but what we've discovered is that all of this, the tabernacle, the instruments in the tabernacle, the furniture, the components, the priesthood, everything that's associated with the tabernacle is one great, big, awesome object lesson of spirituality that specifically points to who? That is a Sunday school answer. If you don't get that one, you just don't come to church enough. Because when I say gives glory to who, just say Jesus. You're 99.9% .9 of the time going to be right, so just say it with confidence. It's Jesus. Guys, this whole thing points to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The, the materials used, the structure, the, this, everything is this great big picture. In fact, it's the greatest Old Testament type of Jesus that there is. And so that's what we've been looking at. And we find ourselves in chapter 27. And the goal tonight, um, having looked at a lot of the various articles of furnishing, furnishings in the tabernacle, um, as we come to chapter 27, we're going to look at two more things. Um, it's not a lot of ink tonight. We're going to look at from verses 9 uh, through 21, the rest of the chapter. Um, I did the first part of it last week. If you want to go back and listen, you can. But we're going to look at two things tonight. We're going to look at the courtyard or the fence, for lack of a better word, that would be around the tabernacle. And we're going to look at the oil that was to be put in the lamps that were inside the holy place in the golden lampstand. And so um, the reason I'm not delving into chapter 28, by the way, if you're curious, is two, re two reasons. Number one, chapter 28 is really long. And number two, it's super packed with awesome stuff. And I don't want to rush through it. I don't want to break it up. I want to get a running start at it next week. So we're just going to kind of marinate in chapter 27 tonight. So let's do that. First of all, let's look at this thing that made up the courtyard, the actual again, for lack of a better word, fence that went around the courtyard. I'll just go ahead and read. Follow with me, verse 9. You shall make the court of the tabernacle. And on the south side, the court shall have hangings. Maybe a better word uh, would be curtains or drapes of fine twined linen, um, 100 cubits long for one side. Now, a cubit is about 18 inches roughly, so that would make it about 150 feet long. It's 20 pillars, and their 20 bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and the fillets shall be 
um, silver, verse 11. And likewise for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings or these curtains of 100 cubits long. Its pillars 20 and their bases 20 of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be silver. So um, he, he describes the north and the south. That would be the length of the courtyard, 150 feet long. Probably individual curtains hung in between these pillars that had bases of bronze. And so 150 feet on one side on the north, 150 feet on the south, fine twined linen. Verse 12. For the breadth of the court of the, of the west side, there shall be hangings or curtains for 50 cubits. That's about 75 feet with 10 pillars and 10 bases. Now listen, verse 13 is where it switches up. So the west side would be the back side of the tabernacle and it's about 50 feet, or excuse me, uh, 75 feet uh, long or wide. Verse 13, the breadth of the court on the front, listen, to the east shall also be 50 cubits or 75 feet. But check this out, verse 14. The hangings... For the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with three pillars and three bases. On the other side, the hanging shall be 15 cubits with three pillars and three bases. Then verse 16 says, The gate of the court, there shall be a screen of 20 cubits long of blue and purple, scarlet yarn, fine twined linen, embroidered with needlework. And it shall have four pillars uh, with them four bases. Now, all the pillars around the court shall be um, filleted. Uh, I don't know. Is that how you say that? Where's Mitch when I need him? Filleted with silver. Is that right? Filleted? Filleted? I've heard it both ways. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, the breadth 50. And listen, now the height. The height shall be 5 cubits, which is about 7 feet, 5 inches, 6 inches, something like that. With hangings of fine twine linen and brass of bronze, all the utensils of the tabernacle for every use, and all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. So, again, let's just kind of get the, the physical and the visual, the specs of this thing, if you would, before we make the leap to application. So just picture with me again, and forgive me, I don't have any uh, pictures up on the screen tonight, but um, we've seen it before. Maybe you can use your imagination. You have the tabernacle proper, that is the tent itself, 45 feet by um, 15 feet by 15 feet. Surrounding it is this fence that we just got done reading about, 150 feet on the north and south, 75 feet on the back, 75 feet on the east side in the front. But the difference, and I don't know if you noticed this, on the east side, which would be the front, the entrance, it would make the corner... And it would go 22 feet and 5 inches on one corner and then stop. And then around the other corner, 22 feet and 5 inches and stop. Then there'd just be this 30-foot gaping hole in the fence. Probably offset from that is another separate fence or screen, they call it, of 30 feet long. And so does that make sense? So there's an opening. And then that opening's got a screen, probably offset a few feet or something like that, so you could go behind it and make your way in. So does that make sense? The point of all of it is this, is that there's a big screen, seven and a half feet high, 150 by 75 by 150 by 75, one entrance. Here's what I want to say about this, and just bear with me for a moment. Pretty simple, 
but profound. Not complicated, but deep. Here's the thing. First of all, the courtyard fence speaks of number one, if you're taking notes, separation. Right? What is the tabernacle? The tabernacle interpretation? Just kidding. Um, The tabernacle ultimately what? Houses the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat where the presence of God was. So it really speaks of where the presence of God is. And what's surrounding the tabernacle? A fence. A wall. And but what does a wall communicate? What does a fence communicate? Stay out of my yard. It communicates separation. Here's God's holy, awesome presence. Don't get too close. That's what it communicates. Now, hold on to that thought for a second, and let's look at the second and most important thing. It not only speaks of separation, but I wanted to accentuate this fact. This is what all I want to pull away from this. There's a lot we could talk about, but this is what I want to get out of it. There's only one entrance through that wall or through that fence. There's only one entrance. There's one way in. By the way, did you notice the material of the screen is a little different than the material of the rest of the fence? In fact, it it talks about purple and gold and scarlet. And if you remember, if it jogs your memory, you go back a chapter and you remember those are the exact same materials used in the veil in the holy place that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. You guys remember that? And in a sense, though it's a veil, it's also an entrance to the holy of holies. And what did that veil ultimately speak of? Who did that veil ultimately speak of? Here's your chance. Jesus, yes. Guys, just like that veil, and by the way, the colors and the materials are typically significant. So blue in Bible typology speaks of heaven. Purple, in Bible typology, speaks of royalty. Scarlet, that deep red scarlet, speaks of blood. Jesus, who's king of kings, who is the great high priest, is also the one who shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. Amen? So it all speaks of Jesus. So here's, here's what I'm, I'm, I'm proposing. I'm not proposing. I'm uh, declaring. Just like the veil ultimately spoke of the person of Jesus Christ, This screen, this one-way entrance into the whole thing, ultimately speaks of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine, by the way, if there was an Israeli Jewish guy, after this whole thing been set up, and maybe he's just kind of skeptical of this whole thing, and he starts kind of murmuring to his guys next to him, he's like, how come there's only one way in? That doesn't seem very efficient. I mean, what if I'm camped out on the west side? I got to walk all the way around to the east side. That's a long walk. That's not very convenient for me. And that's not very inclusive. What about people from, who want to come in from the north side or the south side? Maybe they don't want to go to the east side. Why can't there be more entrances into this thing? I don't really like the way God has set this thing up. So imagine, if you will, you know, you go back to that guy, and he goes, you know what I'm going to do? I got some um, sheep shears here. I'm going to go, and I'm just going to go along the north side. I'm just going to cut a slit into the side and make my own little entrance in. 
I'm going to get an eight-foot ladder. I'm going to put it next to the south side. I'm going to just hop the fence and go on whichever. How do you think that would have been received? I mean, I don't know if there was a tabernacle police, but you can bet if there was, this guy is going to prison for like the rest of his life. I mean, this would be, I mean, it would just be absolutely beyond the realm of imagination where God comes down, you know, or Moses rather comes down from on high, having been face to face with God and says, this is the way God has set this up. And there's this, there's going to be this fence, but there's only one entrance that's on the east side. And I bet everyone's like, okay, cool. That's just the way you get in. So to say that, well, I don't think that's very fair or inclusive or convenient or fits my lifestyle. I want to come in a different way. They would say, that's tough. This is the way that God provided. You see where this is going? Because here's the thing, and I'll say it, but then I want to give some scriptures, and I'm not just trying to make something to kind of bolster us up and like get all aggressive or something, because this is huge. Just as there was one way into the courtyard where the presence of God would be, so too there's only one way to God, to his presence, to right relationship, to fellowship with God. There's only one way, and that way has a name, and his name is Jesus Christ. He's the only way. He's the only entrance. He's the only door. He's the only means by which any human being can access God. How many of you guys know that that is a very offensive message to the culture and the climate that we live in right now? How many of you guys feel that? I would say it's borderline considered hate speech to say something like that. When we come off and say there's only one way to God, there's only one way to salvation, that, I mean, right away you're going to get bristled back with, A, I don't need salvation because there's no real right, or who are you to say there's an absolute right or wrong in the, in, to begin with, and why is your right right and my right's not right and you're wrong? And, and we live in this land of pluralism, of relative truth, of religious pluralism and that thought of the world has absolutely crept into the church and we know from Bible prophecy that as the things get closer to the end and Jesus's dramatic return there's going to be this embracing in the so-called church not the real church you know you can have a steeple you can say church on the outside of your building but that does not mean that you are following what Jesus said or what the Bible says right and as we get closer to the end, there's going to be this denial of truth like that. And there's going to be this in the name of inclusiveness, in the name of love, falsely defined in my opinion. There's going to be this thing saying we can all just kind of come in and it really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, New Age thought, crystals, whatever it is, it's all your way is as good as my way. Let's just not fight about it. But there's a problem with that. There's a thing called truth. And not every way can be the way because they are absolutely conflicting with one another. The, you know, there's this thought out there, well, the monotheistic religions are very much the same. Buddhism, or excuse me, that's not one of the monotheistic. Islam, Judaism, Christianity. And they say, well, and, and fundamentally, they're all kind of got the same foundation. No. No, they don't. Absolutely not. No, they do not have the same foundation. 
They are absolutely opposing one another in their views of core beliefs of who God is. And so the problem is, is that um, you can't say that all ways are okay because unless you just take what our culture is doing and has done in many ways is take truth and kind of shove it aside and it has become very unpopular to talk about truth. I think I've mentioned this before. Did you know in 2016, the Oxford word of the year was post-truth? Post-truth is the idea that truth is not as important as how you feel about the certain situation. So now feelings and emotions dictate what's true more than actually what's true. Well, I don't really feel like 2 plus 2 should be 4. Maybe I feel like today it should be 4.6. Well, that's how you feel. And I'm being a little bit facetious and a little bit cynical, actually. Forgive me. But the point is, is that God is declaring loud and clear, there's one way, there's one entrance, there's one door. Now, by the way, that's an offensive message to the culture we live in. But I want to say this because I think it's important. The message is offensive, but we don't have to be. Do you understand that? Sometimes I think we come off so abrasive and we get in people's face like, there's only one way. Like, we have to remember something. If Jesus Christ hadn't opened our eyes and been gracious to us and brought us into the kingdom, there was a day that we would have been right where the person we're talking to would have been, and we would have been pounding that thing of, you know, there's many ways and all that too. So the message is going to be offensive, but we don't have to be in the way that we deliver it. We don't have to be argumentative. We don't have to be combative. We can have an intellectual and intelligent and loving conversations and listen to people and hear them and talk and kick around. We don't have to... Um, be jerks about it. Does that make sense? We don't fold. We don't capitulate. We don't give in. We stand on, our, on the truth, but we need to be loving in our presentation of that. That's just my two cents on that. Can I just, for, you know, at risk of redundancy, at risk of, I don't know, beating this thing down too hard, I want to just read several scriptures. I'm going to take the time to read them. I want to encourage you two things. Jot them down. You can turn there if you want. But do not let your mind slip, because all of these are undergirding what I just, the, the point of what we just talked about, that there's one way. So this isn't a church stance or a, a conservative stance. This is what Jesus claimed. This is what the Bible says. And we just, I think, need to know these things. So if you don't really know where that's found in the Bible, I'm going to give you several places. Number one, John chapter 3. Listen, please. Verse 16. You may have heard of it. But and following. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Verse 19, and this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Another one, John chapter 8, and this is one that is a jaw-dropper. Listen to what Jesus says. John chapter 8, verse 21. Again, I'm not going to give the context. I'm just going to read straight what he said. So he, that is Jesus, said to them, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. 
Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below and I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Verse 24, I told you that, I would, uh, that you would die in your sins. Listen to this phrase. Because unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. John chapter 10, verses 7 through 10. Thank you for your patience on each of these. They're important. John chapter 10, verses 7 through 10. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All, listen, who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself. I just love that verse that where I am you may be also, and you know the where I am going. You know the way and you know where I am going. Listen, verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Luke chapter 13 verse 22 through 30. Luke chapter 13, verse 22 through 30. He went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And some said to him, listen, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, say, Lord, open to us. He will answer you, I do not know where you come from. And you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and we, and we taught on your, in your streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, you workers of evil. In the place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves are cast out, and people will come from east and west and north and south, recline at the table of the kingdom of God, and behold, some are last who will be first, and first that will be last. One more scripture, Matthew chapter 7, and I'll just read one verse, verse 14. Actually, I lied, two verses, 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. This is a heavy doctrine. There's one way to the Father. And the point I'm trying to get across tonight, what the Holy Spirit's been putting on my heart for the last couple of days is this. This is not 
good theology. In other words, it's not just good theology. This is reality. This is the way that it is. It's not just for us to have it down. We need to have it down, but it's not just to have it down so we can have our arguments down. We need to have this in our heart. And when you consider the heaviness that there are hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands and millions of people who will seek to go to God some other way, and when it's all said and done, they will die and enter into an eternity of dark, bleak, torment, hopelessness that never ends is heavy. And what I think I need in this is to let that heaviness settle in once in a while in my heart. You see, what this has done for me this week is two things. Number one, when I consider the fact that there is this way to God through Jesus Christ, I worship Him. I am so full of joy because here's the thing. It's not like there was a fence around it with no entrance. He could have just said, nope, I'm holy, you're not, stay out. But guess what? He made an entrance. Amen? And instead of complaining about how come there's not more entrances, hey, we need to just rejoice that there's a entrance. Amen? Because, guys, this whole thing is a picture of the gospel. God is holy and righteous and just and pure. And because of our sin and our rebellion against the holy and righteous God, we deserve to be cast into hell for eternity. We are not good people. We are not good at the core. We are rebels towards God, and we deserve damnation. That is also, by the way, a very unpopular doctrine in the world. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, the way that God made is unthinkable. He came down as man and lived in our place and died vicariously for our sins on the cross. And now he's risen from the dead. And if we put our trust in him, he deposits his righteous life to us and takes our sinful life upon himself. And there's a great exchange. Amen. And that's the way in. So on one hand, when I consider the one way in, it's like, whoa, there's a way in. You know, it's like, it's like if there was a cure for cancer, and they're like, how come there's only one cure? What? There's a cure. Guys, there's a cure for the cancer of sin, and his name is Jesus Christ. And so that's the first thing. It fills me with worship, but then going back to where I began on this, I'm ashamed of myself and how little I allow the heaviness of the reality of eternity to just come in, but that's too much to think about, so I want to think about something else. And I don't think you could constantly live with that heaviness all the time. You'd go mad. But we can't pretend it's not there. And here's where the struggle was for me. Because I wanted to teach this, but it wasn't, it's not real in my heart. And I'm like, God, 
I don't feel this deep pain for the lost like I should, and you've got to change that in me because this ain't right. I was just in my own devotions reading through Acts. I was thinking, I was reading in Acts 17 about when Paul goes to Athens. And he's there, and he's waiting for his guys to meet him there, and he's there for a few days by himself. And he says he's walking around town, and he sees all these idols, and he just, his heart is just smote, and he can't handle it. So what does he do? He goes to the marketplace, and he's talking about Jesus. And, and so what kills me is that I can feel that heaviness and be like, oh, yeah, somebody should do something about that. That's why we're here. Amen. I know we're not all called to be evangelists on the street corners, but we have to understand that we have been called to live on mission. Right exactly where you live, right exactly in your neighborhood, in your school, in your job. There's people that if they died tomorrow, they may not ever... Well, they would never have a chance to see God or have life. And, and it, wow, it's heavy, it's hard, I don't want to think about that. And I guess I'm just saying tonight, can we just let the heaviness of that settle in on us? And just let it break us? Because the natural response is then, oh God, forgive me. Forgive me for being so caught up in my life and my thing and my world that I'm forgetting about all these people around me. What would you have me do, Lord? You know, when you let that heaviness settle in on you and you see and you feel just a smidge, just a drop from the ocean of the heaviness of that and you feel that drop hit your soul and it's so overwhelming and there may be tears well up, the next normal thought is, what am I going to do? I can't do anything. Who am I? I'm a nobody. And you know what? You're right. But let's look at the rest of the chapter real quick. He says, You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light. The lamp may burn regularly or constantly be set up to burn in the tent of the meeting outside the veil as before the testimony. Aaron and his son shall tend to it in evening and morning before the Lord. It should be a statue forever observed throughout all the generations by the people of Israel. You know what he's referring to right there? He's referring to back in the holy place. Track with me. Don't lose me. In the holy place, there's the golden lampstand. On top of that golden lampstand are seven individual lamps. Inside those lamps are filled with pure olive oil. All this passage is saying is, hey, the people are responsible to bring the olive oil in so that the priests, listen, can keep tending to those lamps so that they burn constantly from evening to morning. Jewish days go from evening to morning, not morning to evening. What he's communicating is that light is supposed to constantly burn forever and be bright. And to make that happen, it's got to keep getting filled with oil. Now, when we talked about the golden lampstand, we ultimately discovered that it speaks of Jesus, ultimately. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But he also said in the Sermon on the Mount to those who are listening, you are the light of the world. And I was thinking about this. That lamp is made up of seven individual lamps. And it's kind of a picture of the church, right? When all seven, seven in the number of completion in the Bible, when they're all seven burning, we're giving off the light of Jesus, a complete picture. But my point is this. 
Oil in the Bible is a picture or a type of the Holy Spirit. I would refer you to Zechariah chapter 4 where Zechariah has this vision of a golden lampstand, two olive trees that are just pumping olive oil into those lamps, and the vision goes on, and angel, do you know what you're looking at, Zechariah? I don't know what I'm looking at. He says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And it's a picture of this constant flow of oil into the lamps to burn bright, speaking of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're tracking with me, I don't even know if I'm tracking with me at this point, but if you're tracking with me, there's one way in. It's to Jesus Christ. And there's a world that needs to hear that message, and we, we, we feel the heaviness of that. But what can I do about it? Nothing, unless you are filled with the oil of the Holy Spirit. Amen? You see, when you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, John chapter 14 verse 16, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, when you heard the gospel, the word of your salvation, you believed and you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. When you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into you. But like Pastor Steve was talking about on Sunday, there's a separate and distinct dynamic that is to be for every single believer, not just those who go to a Pentecostal church, but for every single believer, there's another dynamic that Jesus talked about. He said you would receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You may have the oil of the Holy Spirit but have you been lit yet? You know, you can have a lamp sitting there full of oil, but unless the fire touches it, it doesn't give off any light. And I believe what we need so desperately in the church today, just to piggyback on what Pastor Steve was saying last Sunday, is we need a fresh baptism, a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. And some of us need to have that initial fire from heaven touch the wick of our soul so that we burn with a power and an ability that is beyond our own power and beyond our own ability. Amen? Amen. So I just want to take a moment to pray, okay, in closing. And, and the first thing I want to pray about is this. I just read a story of D.L. Moody this week, great evangelist, Chicago. He was doing a series in Chicago, four or five-part series, I believe it was. His plan was at the end of that series to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think in the fourth sermon, he was four meetings, four nights into this crusade. And he said, come back next week because we're going to talk about it. I don't know exactly how he said it, but he was setting them up to come back next week for the gospel. And as he closed and he said amen, the fire bells were ringing in the distance because it was the great Chicago fire that burned thousands of, you know, buildings and those meetings never took place. And he said, I would rather lose my right arm than end an evening without giving the gospel because I don't know if I'll ever see those people again. I don't know where you stand with Jesus. I assume you're a believer because you came to church on a Wednesday night who does that. But I shouldn't assume anything. I want to ask you a question. Have you gone through Jesus Christ to be reconciled with the Father? Are you a born-again Christian? If you died today, would you be in the presence of God? And if you cannot answer that with, with a deliberate, yes, yes I am. Oh, not because I've been a good person, not because I've been moral. I haven't. I failed in all of that thing, those things. But I put my trust in Jesus who died for my failures and then by his grace has imputed to me his righteousness. So I stand before God fully, solely, holy because of Jesus' righteousness and his completed work. If that's your testimony and you say, yes, amen, praise the Lord. But if I ask you if you're a born-again Christian, if you're going to go to heaven, if you die tonight, and your response is, I hope so, or I'm working on it, then you don't understand the gospel. 
It's like being pregnant. You either are or you're not. <laughs> There's no in-between. You're either saved, justified, and born again, or you're not. There's no working on it. There's no gradual working up to it. That's a works mentality. That's religion, and that's not Christianity. All other religions are us trying to get to God. Christianity is God came down to us. He did it all. We just enter in by his grace through faith. We, we receive a gift. That's what Christianity is. And if you've not done that tonight, tonight's the night of your salvation. Do not leave this room unless you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. Amen? Secondly, I want us to just pray. I'm not, not in some worked-up emotional thing. But I just want to ask the Holy Spirit to allow, allow tonight and tomorrow as we cruise through Kilauea, Hanalei, Kapa'a, Lihui, wherever you're going, that we would have a heart like Paul, that we can't stand the fact that they were surrounded by people that don't know God. And that it would cause our hearts to break and it would cause us to go to prayer. I love what Charles Haddon Spurgeon says, before you can be winners of souls, you've got to be weepers for souls. When's the last time you wept over the condition of your family, of this island, of our nation, of the world? And that's not something I can make happen in you just like I couldn't make it happen in me. I had to be honest with God and say, I don't feel that way. Holy Spirit, change me. And I just would triple dog dare you tonight to pray that. And then lastly, that we would pray, would you fill me afresh with the power of your Holy Spirit? Maybe you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit, but you need a fresh filling, like Pastor Steve said on Sunday. Maybe you have the Holy Spirit, you're born again, but you have not been baptized with the power of the Spirit. You haven't had the flame of God touch your heart and ignite you. Maybe you need that tonight. Why don't you ask Him? Why don't you pray about it? Let's all stand together. And let's bow our heads and our hearts in prayer.